Well, friends, welcome to Fuel, the official podcast of Friends Southwest, a family of churches, where we are fueling a spirit-led movement where Jesus changes people who change the world. I'm so glad you've joined us today. It's been a while. We've taken a little bit of a hiatus from our podcasts, and we hope to be back and bring you some really inspirational and helpful and insightful guests. With us is Dr. Peace Amati. She's a professor, author, speaker, coach. She's the founder of Influencing Well, a wellness company, and she has a new book coming out this spring that we'll talk a little bit more at the end of the podcast. I first met um, Dr. Peace, as people affectionately call her, when we held a prayer rally for some schoolgirls from Nigeria who were taken by the Boko Raton. And I was drawn to her warmth and her passion and the skillful way that she responded to the situation. And so as we were considering as a denomination, what topics we would want to approach in a podcast, certainly uh, with the anniversary of Breonna Taylor's death coming up on us in the next couple of weeks, and then George Floyd in May, and so many of the other um, issues that have arisen in this really volatile year we've had. Um, Racial reconciliation, unity and diversity was one of the topics that we want to be faithful to continue the conversation in so that we will be churches who are aware and thoughtful and taking the gospel to everyone. And so I thought of Dr. Pisamati and invited her to come and be our guest today to share with us um, some of her thoughts on these issues. Dr. Amati speaks all over about a multitude of issues, not just race relations. Her mission is really to help people heal so that they can lead better, to lead out of a whole place. And so, Dr. Peace Amati, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. And all of that was beautiful to listen to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. We are glad you're here. For our listeners who don't know you, would you tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, the work that God has called you to? Sure thing. Yeah, well, you you hit a lot of it. Uh, professionally, I'm a psychology professor by day, um, and I like to say a whole bunch of other things by night. <laughs> so, um, not not quite superwoman, but um, I I am a coach. Um, I coach a program focused on helping leaders and pastors to have difficult conversations in their church. And I also coach uh, what I call high potential people who need to kind of get over um, hump, the humps of fear, um, imposterism, and things like that mm-hmm. to go ahead and do the work that God, God has called them to do. And that program is called Heal and Lead. So I coach in those ways under Influencing Well, which you mentioned. Um, and you know, the first program, far more relevant to what we're talking about today. But like you said, I, I feel that I've been called to help people heal so that they can better lead. I feel especially call to influencers and entrepreneurs and church leaders and um, just the people in our lives that we go to the most. Um, I'm passionate about 
and, and feel equipped to be a cheerleader for mm. those people um, and equip them internally and externally to lead more wholeheartedly and effectively and truly be able to maximize their impact in, in our current times. Mm. So, Peace, as we head into our topic for today, uh, unity in diversity, can you put racial reconciliation in a gospel context for us? What is the Jesus ethic here? Yeah, so for this, for this, I, I honestly just go straight to, well, there's quite a few, there's quite a few scriptures I like to turn to, but the one that immediately jumps when people ask me a question related to this is 1 Corinthians 12, 26. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's from a larger passage of scripture that um, details how the body of Christ should operate together. Mm -hmm. And so the part I always kind of focus on says, if one part of the body suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Mm. And I don't know, you know, how much more clear the word could get about allowing ourselves to feel and enter the pain and suffering of each other, the grievances we have, um, the hopes we have, the concerns we have for POC, um, Black people specifically, I think right now is a good time to feel and enter. I mean, you mentioned Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and, and how we're approaching the anniversary of their deaths, which is crazy, crazy to think about. Mm -hmm. um, but those pains haven't, that pain hasn't gone anywhere. Right. I know from my personal circles, um, my collegiate circles, um, it's, it's still something we're talking about. It's still something we're, we're raw about because of course it's just it's not just about these two lives. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Absolutely. Okay. And so as the body, as, as, as a black woman in America, as um, a daughter of Im immigrants, I'm a I'm Nigerian American. Mm -hmm. And as a person of Christian faith, it's just been kind of really interesting the conversations I've been a part of and, um, and difficult trying to find a way to talk about this stuff um, in a way that is authentic to me, um, but but um, in a way that people can hear. It's yeah. it's hard. <laughs> it's hard, and unfortunately, the church in general, Big C Church, hasn't been great with this. But I think that when I point people to the scripture, or when we look at the scripture, I think it. I I've seen it sort of immediately open the door to conversation about what that looks like, you know, in our recent times. I love that you took us to that scripture piece because while it seems so obvious to you, I'm not sure it's one that others would easily jump to, but it is so weighty to speak to these issues that we're struggling with because we do have brothers and sisters of color who are suffering, that a part of the body is indeed suffering. And the way we live out the Jesus ethic of loving our neighbor is to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And so I really love that you put it in the context of if one part of the body is suffering, the whole body suffers because that that's our mindset or ought to be as followers of Christ that it's all yeah. about the gospel and the kingdom of kingdom of God. So I appreciate that you brought that scripture in. 
Yeah. And thank you for asking that. And I do love starting there. I love starting with scripture. I mean, that's central in all our lives. Um, but I, I like to, I like to add sort of the, the, or inject, I should say the, the academic side of things. Um, when we're talking about racial reconciliation, and this has been a, you know, um, heavily researched, pretty well-defined concept. Um, racial reconciliation rec first recognizes racism in America mm -hmm. is real and it's systemic. And I, I imagine we'll be talking more about that. Um, and it requires relationship building and truth telling and it seeks justice. And mm -hmm. that's a big piece that I'm not sure um, leaders, churches, you know, people of faith are super clear about that we can't reconcile without seeking justice. And that's a proactive thing. That's a proactive reinforcement of attitudes and practices and policies that produce equity um, among races. And the goal of racial reconciliation is actually healing. So mm -hmm. if we have not healed Right. If we have not healed within ourselves, if we have not healed among ourselves truly, then and we haven't we haven't done that. And between ourselves. Yeah, exactly. If we have not, you know, restored something, then, you know, we're we we're not reconciled. Right. Uh, true healing is is the result of reconciliation. And yes. I, I like to draw that that sort of directional um, picture. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why at its, at its core, this is not only a social issue. It is a deeply spiritual one Yep. because our call is to act justly, love mercy and walk humbly with God. Like uh -huh. it says in Micah six, eight. And so Justice being part of reconciliation, being part of healing, that's, that's the path laid out for us as followers of Christ. And I think while we might all give assent to that, we just can't underscore it enough because it has to be the place we start. It has to be our bottom line. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So peace, our time is already flying so fast. So I, I want to get to some of the things that are harder to talk about. You said it's even hard for you to know how to speak truth, but be authentic to yourself. So will you just give us briefly an understanding of the difference between personal racism and systemic racism? Yeah, so personal racism or individual racism, which um, you might hear that term a little bit more, it, it refers to the person's, like an individual's racist assumptions, their own beliefs, their racist actions. And that in and of itself is a form of racial discrimination that stems from, you know, whatever conscious or unconscious things there are with you, prejudice. Systemic racism though, um, also called structural or institutional racism exists across a society um, within and between institutions. So it's the practices, the ideologies, the programs of institutions, all the institutions you can think of that produce and perpetuate inequities 
for racial minorities. So that's that's the key there. Whether they realize it or not, whether this is intentional or not, if it's producing um, racial, if it's producing inequities for racial minorities, you know that's what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. So. This, some examples of this would be housing discrimination. I mean, these are all well-researched phenomenons, um, well-researched disparities and problems. Housing discrimination, racial profiling, predatory banking, um, disparate access to healthcare, higher promotion practices, sentencing disparities. I just taught um, a psychology and law course last semester at my university and really looking at the history of this stuff, the history of the incarceration system and um, and, and what it's, <laughs> all of what goes into that was was really hard for my students to take in. Mm. I, I work at a predominantly white university, Christian, mostly Christian students. And so this is stuff that they've never come across and you know their previous schooling uh, we read this book called the new jim crow a book they'd never set their eyes on mm-hmm. um it's it was wild and and um it was good to see for me as their professor kind of really dive in and, and embrace this material and literally change over the span of 15 weeks but it was it was hard yeah a hard truth to face um and so yeah, those are the type of things we're talking about when it comes to systemic racism. We're talking literally about inequities across the system. And the key here, this is, you know, because people get caught up in, well, I'm not racist and I have nothing to do with racism and we should move on from the past. The key here is that these systems operate independent of the actions and intentions of any one individual. So even if individual racism is not present, Okay, because we have moved, a, a, let's acknowledge we have moved a long ways mm-hmm. from the past, right? Mm-hmm. But even if individual racism is not present, the adverse conditions and inequalities for racial minorities will continue to exist because this has been historical. This has been the status quo. This, is, this has just been what it is. So it doesn't require individual racists. S- systemic racism doesn't require an individual a racist individual at the helm at all. This is just how systems are running, independent of individual racists, if that makes sense. And that's, that's a what super ma- important point for people to understand because, and that was what was really in my question, because as I have conversations with people, they have trouble understanding systemic racism if they feel themselves like, not really racist. Number one, we all have our own denial, right, about the ways in which that I discriminate against people for a number of things. But you being able to delineate that systemic racism is independent, runs independently of individual racism is a very, I think, very important, potent point for us to understand as we continue to engage these conversations. What do, yeah. you, what do you think are some of our biggest, most prevalent obstacles we face as we try to move toward unity and diversity and maybe speak to our context here in the Southwest where we live and as Christians? What, what would you say are some of our biggest obstacles? Um, honestly, apathy, because mm. everybody loves MLK, right? Yeah. I remember <laughs> eye-opening how much people really don't know MLK and what he stood for and the type of things he said, Mm -hmm. because he was, while he was nonviolent, he wasn't polite. And that is a very different 
very different thing. Um, I would say so those attributes my, were same with Jesus. He was nonviolent, but I, I'm not sure he was always polite either. <laughs> no, brood of vipers. And all, <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, Jesus spoke, you know, he, he said it how he needed to say it. Uh-huh. Uh, we like to say, you know, he got the job done, but, um, so an MLK, I'm going to read a piece of an MLK quote, and it says, shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Okay, again, read it, read under- it again. Yeah. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Mm. And earlier in the quote, I'm not going to read the earlier part because it's really intense. He literally calls out what he called the white moderate and said that they were more a problem to the movement than the KKK. And what he's making the point that that it's easy to point the fingers at like the flagrant racist and, you know, the people who are using the N word and literally doing all kinds of crazy things when really the, the bigger stumbling block block is people that don't care or don't care enough um, and aren't willing to really look at the situation for what it is. So I would say it's absolutely apathy. It's misinformed um, willingly uninformed Christians um, that are a big problem, mm-hmm. if you ask me. Um, in, addition, in addition to things like fear and guilt and shame and all that other stuff that we've heard before, but I, um, I think apathy is, is huge. Apathy is huge. And that's tragic. It makes me think of um, that scripture where where Jesus rebukes them for saying, be warmed and fed rather mm. than rather than feeding them and bringing them in and giving them clothes. That it's that I get to feel good about my response, but I don't really have to change anything about me or be impacted or be moved. Like putting a Band-Aid on something when it really requires surgery. Yep. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's that's profound and and makes me sad because I'm I'm certain that I've been part of that as well. That um, and I guess that's the definition of white privilege on some level that we can opt in and opt out, mm. right? Yeah. Rather rather than staying in the pain and bearing the burden, like we talked about earlier with our brothers and sisters. So, yeah, you're you're totally right, Heidi, when you say, you know, a part of white privilege is being able to opt in and and out um, of the problem. But, you know, we're we're not afforded those opportunities. I mean, this is literally conversations we're having every day because our employment depends on it or us wanting to buy a house depends on it. I mean, I'm talking to my family every day and these are things that are coming up in our conversations every day because they have to. They have to. So, Peace, I already brought up a hot button, uh, which is white privilege, right? We kind of talked about that a little bit. I'm going to bring up some other hot buttons and uh, would love you to respond and help us understand. So talk to me about Black Lives Matter. Sure. So, I mean, Black Lives Matter is an organization um, that has a mission to intervene in violence inflicted on Black communities by the powers that be 
um, which also means dismantling white supremacy, which is, you know, the antagonist, the main antagonist to Black life. And um, I know I know there's been some concerns about, you know, BLM and when you kind of look at the nitty gritty of some of their less central goals and, and standpoints and people I've heard experience some dissonance around Black Lives Matters, the movement. Um, but where I've, where I've struggled is, you know, what stops you from still being able to say Black lives matter as a value or as a, or as a principle, mm-hmm. um, you know, let's like, let's put it in a, in another context. I mean, not to be, you know, completely facetious, but we can all agree teachers' lives matters. Um, but I don't know that everyone has kind of looked into what teacher unions are doing and where they stand on COVID or not, but we're able to say teachers' lives matters mm-hmm. or pastors' lives matters and do we agree with every single pastor in the United States? Do we even agree with our pastor every single time? President's lives matters. I mean, you can be in disagreement with a thing or two about a movement or a person and still be able to uphold that value with everything in you. Mm-hmm. So the tension that there is to me is a little uh, questionable and feels like just a, an easy way to opt out of a conversation. Yeah. And we can make a differentiation between the organization and the proclamation. And the proclamation is one of value. I heard a great analogy the other day um, by Albert Tate saying, if on Father's Day, my son gave me a card that said, happy parents day, all parents are awesome. It would be hurtful because it was the time to support me as a father. And it's not a statement against all parents. And that this is a moment in time where it's time for us to be able to stand up and proclaim together, we are saying that Black lives matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great story. Yeah. That's great. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, here's another hot button. I, If I'm for the police, I'm against people of color. Hmm. Okay, so I'm going to be honest here and say, if you are for police, but you are not also for police accountability, then yes, you are against people of color and specifically black people because they are the most brutalized by police when brutality does happen. So not saying brutality happens every day, not saying black people are being wiped out from earth by police, but when it happens, it's happening mostly to us, two times the rate of any other demographic. And so we can be for police and we should be for police. I'm for police, but we should equally be for police accountability. Like using a relationship example, it's like saying I am for my husband, but I am not for keeping him accountable to his behavior. Or I am for my wife, but I am not for keeping her accountable to her behavior. It it doesn't make sense. They should go together. Mm. Okay, let's do another one. I'm not a racist. I don't see color. Mm -hmm. I would say good for you. (laughs) And then I would say, (laughs) I would say first, that's not true because we see color in everything. And, And again, I think that's an obvious point, but more so I would say, Okay, well, here's my follow-up question. Are you a part of any system that has perpetuated racism? Like, how would you know? Have you asked? Have you researched? Have you had dialogue with people who 
um, look, talk, and act differently from you? Have you listened to any experts on race and racism and injustice? Um, because if you haven't done those things, then saying I'm not a racist is a very generous, very convenient thing to tell yourself. Very generous, very convenient thing. Because again, you may not have any of that in your heart, but you could be actively and probably are actively a part of a system that's still creating inequities for racial minorities. So the difference between I'm not a racist versus I'm intentionally anti-racist. Uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, I mean, that's a whole other conversation. That's a whole other conversation because I'm not, my goal isn't to go around telling everyone to, you know, say I'm an anti-racist. I mean, I, I teach about anti-racism and what that looks like, but I think what needs to happen first is people realize they can absolutely not be racist, but still be part of a racist system. Mm. That's what people need to realize. Mm -hmm. You know, and then if we realize that, then we can go on to, okay, how to be an anti-racist. But if we first don't acknowledge that being individually racist has very little to do with being a part of perpetuating racial inequity, then, um, you know, again, very generous, very convenient and part of the problem. Mm -hmm. So Peace, I think what I hear you saying is awareness is sort of the the prevailing step, not just the next step, but needs to continue to be the step that if I am not actively pursuing awareness of the racial disparities that exist around me, even if I don't find them super prevalent in my own heart, I'll never be able to be influential and helpful in systemic racism. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because there's there's so many, there's so many things that need to be done and so many things that are being done right now. Um, so many organizations, so many people on the ground, so many grass, you know, um, what's it called? Grass. Grassroots. What is that word? There we go. There we go. <laughs> Grassroots movements that are happening that I can talk all day about, but it's not going to land for you if you're not first aware of, oh, the, you know, maternal maternal morbidity rates uh for black women are two times white women and everybody like what's what's that about what's going on there you know if you're not aware that these things are happening the numbers and uh, of people locked up and what that looks like with with the the color of these people look like that are in the prison systems mm -hmm. you know I mean, and why that is um then when i tell you hey there's an organization that is you know you know their whole thing is about proving innocence, whatever the case may be, that's, you're not going to, it's not going to matter to you mm -hmm. because you don't have a real understanding of how big of a deal this is. Mm -hmm. So that awareness, that just really spending that time, okay, what is going on um, is, is everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I really hear you saying like actively pursuing awareness, not just being aware, but educating myself, deciding like this needs to be more important to me than it's been because maybe my life doesn't demand it, but my commitment to Jesus does. That's correct. And that awareness, here's another piece, um, definitely should start with you. Um, but I think a big piece of it is actually, actually just seeking out 
experts. Mm -hmm. And so I always challenge pastors. um, How many times have you invited a person of color to speak at your church? Mm -hmm. You know, how many times have, you know, you've really sought someone with an expertise in these areas to come up on stage and, and deliver the goods. And then to challenge them even more, how many times have you invited a person of color to speak about something in your church that has nothing to do with race? Mm -hmm. Because here's the other implication um, that what people of color provide and can provide is only expertise around race and diversity. So this is another level and this is another kind of another conversation um, all at the same time. Um, But there's just so many questions we really need to ask ourselves, even when the question is as simple as, am I perpetuating racism? Um, am I a part of a systemic, am I a part of a system that's perpetuating racism? Because again, it could be really easy to say no, but your actions speak a lot louder mm-hmm. um, as leaders, as entrepreneurs, as um, you know, pastors, all of that. Mm-hmm. So that awareness piece, that learning piece that you get best when you speak to an expert really is what kind of drives you to think about the things you need to be thinking about. Yeah. Excellent. Peace. This has been so helpful and so great. We could go on for a long time. We only got to touch the surface of a few things, but my prayer is that this helps our pastors continue the conversation your challenge to us to actively increase our awareness, to create some proximity with other pastors of color, to invite them to come and speak, not just on issues of race, but just on the word and their understanding of God. Those are all really helpful and things that I believe we can do and I trust will do. Before we close, is there anything else on your heart that you would want us to think about or anything else that you would want to say? No pressure. It doesn't have to be. I just want to give you opportunity. No, thank you for that question. And, and I, my hope is that the conversations do continue. Um, actually, let me say that the conversations start, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, I've, I've worked with pastors. I do work with pastors and when they are very honest, most of them are like, we haven't even started this conversation at our Mm -hmm. church because we don't know how Mm -hmm. we don't know how. And that's, you know, part of the work I do. I think we mentioned at the top that I do have a course that uh, coaches pastors specifically around how to have these type of conversations at their church. And so you can leave my information for them, Heidi, if, if anyone, you know, wants to take this a step further and kind of signs up on my um, mailing list, they'll be the first to know when my next round comes up because there is a lot to dig into here, far more than we could ever on a podcast, right? But hopefully this is what the appetite for people to want to seek out information from the best sources. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. And we will put in the podcast notes where you can contact Dr. Pisa Mahdi for her coaching program for pastors to discuss racial 
Reconciliation. We will also be giving you some information about her new book that will be released this spring, Why Do I Feel Like This? It's a book that focuses on mental and emotional health and its convergence with faith. So uh, Dr. Peace, thank you so much for sharing your heart with us, for sharing yourself with us, and I will look forward to future opportunities to connect and have conversations together. Thank you so much for having me, Heidi, and for your heart um, and your courage in in this topic. I, I love to see it. I love to hear it. And it's been an honor to chat with you guys a bit. Well, we've really appreciated it. You take good care. You too. Well, friends, thank you so much for joining me here at Fuel in this very important conversation about unity and diversity. It was just the very tip of the iceberg of conversations that we desire to keep having so that as a family of churches, we can work together for justice, unity, reconciliation, and to care for any and all of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering. We'd love to hear from you and how the Lord is leading you and your churches to respond to issues of unity and diversity. What kinds of actions are you taking? What conversations are you having? We are better together as a family of churches, and we commit to you that we will continue the conversation and to provide helpful resources for all of us, as this is part of the work of a gospel life. If you want to get in touch with Dr. Peace Amadi, you can find her contact information in the episode notes and also in the email that accompanied this podcast. Friends, I hope you're well, and I will look forward to the next time that we get together to fuel a spirit-led movement where Jesus changes people who change the world. I'm your host, Heidi Matson.